This time of year, one of my favorite verses that I give all the time, found in Job 38, I think it's verse 22. It's a great verse that I claimed many, many, many years ago when bad weather days when I decided to go ahead and preach or teach the Bible or do Bible study. And God's always blessed it. And it's Job 38, 22. It says, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? And where most people see the snow as an impending thing which will keep them from church, I've always looked at it as that uh, that's where the treasure really is, that God will uh, open up some things that maybe he normally wouldn't do just based on the fact that uh, there's treasures in the snow. So with that in mind, let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 25. Last week, we looked at verses 11, 12, and 13, and if you can see how I'm kind of taking these in little sections, sometimes one verse at a time, sometimes two at a time, we just got to work it through. Uh, But we finished a great little section that really held a lot of good, solid principles for us. And as you can see, we're adding principles week by week. We're, We're learning more, we're getting concepts down, principles, patterns, and that's what we really want to do. I talked about last week about having an obedient ear. And, uh, you know, uh, based on a wise reprover who will give you words that are fitly spoken. Those were the last three weeks that we took each week on. We talked about the words fitly spoken. Then we talked about the obedient ear and the reprover, wise reprover. And come up with the idea or the aspect of the ability to hear what God says to us. You know, and we talked about the apples of gold and the pictures of silver. The apples of gold representing who God is, the pictures of silver, uh, what he's done for us. And then we've been talking about how to apply those things, how to change the direction of your life. But first, you must allow uh, the Word of God to do two things. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. First of all, penetrate your heart and then get into your head, and then really three things. The third one was, then then it'll change your life and give you the life-changing effect that we all want. I also talked about how we should always try to make people better. I think that that is a standard mindset that every child of God should have. You and I, with the Word of God and God's salvation and all that God has given us, we are better. We're better off in the sense that our sins are forgiven. We're better off that we have an absolute standard. We're not like the world who doesn't have any hope. So we ought to be meeting people and giving them that hope, not leaving them with less hope than they already had before we met them. And I, and, and I get it. Though that's not always possible. We talked about the aspect of people wanting to be enabled uh, instead of edified that people always want you to do something for them. And of course, uh, it's not always possible to leave somebody better than you find them because they want to stay in the circumstances that they're in. And to to edify someone, you have to be a wise reprover. You have to use the word fitly spoken. And, and, um, you know, some people just don't want that. They'll never get honest about their lives and the situation that they're in. And there's no way that you can take a negative and turn it into a positive as long as the person loves the negativity that they have in their life. Then we looked out at verse 13, that we are to be a refreshing spirit to the ones we minister to. Not only to the ones that we minister to, but to the ones that sent us. And that would be a reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
You know, we've looked back in Acts 13, verses 1 through 2. We've talked about it many times, how that they ministered to the Lord first. And we've talked about what that means. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about that, you know, the death of Christ was a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they took an animal and to appease their sins, at least temporarily with God, they would burn that animal on the altar. That burnt flesh, would, the smell would come up in the nostrils of God and through that innocent sacrifice and God smelling that, it pleased him and uh, he accepted their sacrifice. Those are the things that uh, we can do. And the Bible says that when we, 2 Corinthians 2.15, talk about Christ, tell somebody the story of Christ, witness about Christ. The Bible says it doesn't matter whether the person gets saved or the person stays lost. That witness to other people is a sweet savor in the nostrils of God because it brings up to God his remembrance of the day that his son paid the ultimate price for us on the cross. And it's a tremendous concept. So when we do those things that God has called us to do, it's not only a refreshing to the people you're giving the uh, cold drink of water to, it's also refreshing to the ones that sent us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Pleasing God by the things that we do and the things that we say. Now today... We want to move on into another three verses. I'm not sure how far uh, we'll get today. Uh, probably no farther than the first one, but that's okay. But uh, uh, we're going to look at our next section of verses, and as I said, we'll see how far we get today. Now, over the last couple years in the ministry, I have had a word forced upon me that I... I I have never really cared to use. I think it's a word that is not very pretty to use. It, it paints a disparaging picture. It, it, it's not a cuss word or anything, but uh, it, it, it carries with it a negative connotation. To say this to somebody, I think is, I would never do it. But I have been forced into this. <coughs> I, I want you to know this. Uh, and it's by you folks. I'm sorry. <laughs> Somebody a while back gave me a plaque back there that, uh, or gave me, the, I found a plaque. They gave me the, gave me the saying, and I got online and found it because it just, I couldn't sleep at night. It was so, it was so, it was so terrible in its nature, but so true in its concept. And it's back on the wall back there, and it says life is tough, and we all know that to be true. But then it goes on and says, but it's tougher when you're stupid. And that is, that is, that's an old quote out of a John Wayne movie. And, uh, you know, I, I put that up back there because that's truth. Well, I was fine. I never said much about it. But in the day and age that we live in, especially with what I'm going to preach on today, God, the author of all things, just saw so fit to deliver this into my hands. And uh, it's something, it's another saying that's going to go up on the wall back here. That is so true. Gary Potter says this to me all the time when we talk about circumstances and situations. I never really thought about it, but it, it, it's true. And it's the, I want to use this today. And I'm going to make a reference to this. And I want you to help me. This is, I think class participation was a great thing in school. 
And so I need class participation today to help me with this because I don't want to be the only one saying this ugly word. But it's a word that has forced itself upon me. And the Christianity that I live in, I find no other word that is apropos for the time that we live. And it's a cute little saying, and it's, well, you can't fix stupid. Right, Gary? That's right. So bear with me as we walk through our message today that I will make a reference to, because a lot of times when you deal with people in the Bible, you wonder why something so obvious that they just can't get. And now today you're going to get the answer. The answer is, we've got to get a little better than that. The answer is, you can't fix okay, good deal. Now, you're sitting out there probably saying, well, I don't think that's very nice. A Christian shouldn't do that. Hey, you know what? You know why people don't like terms like that? Because they're true. We don't like it because it's true. If you've done any kind of personal work over the years, you have learned that that thing is true. There are people who should know better, who don't know better, who won't know better, and you can't fix stupid. And you know and I know as well as I'm standing here that life is tough. But you know what has made life tougher for all of us? The stupid things that we've done. Has life ever been tougher for anybody by the good things we've done? It's the stupid things we do. So you make those kind of statements and somebody, meaning good meaning Christian, says, well, I don't think that's very Christian. I don't think the way people live their lives who claim to be Christians are very Christian sometimes. But they continue on. And the reason is... Okay, we're, we're, we're going to have a good time today. Now, I want to read Proverbs chapter 25 for you. I'm going to read 14, 15, and 16 just to get a context. And then we'll, we'll move through it from there. It says this. Whoso boasts himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled wherewith it and vomit it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We pray your blessings upon us today as we enter into the treasures of the snow. Thank you for the folks that have come out that are, are here with us today and pray your blessings upon our time. I pray your blessing and give us what we need today and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, here are three more verses that we're going to glean from over the next couple of weeks. But today, let's look at verse 14. And it says, Whoso boasts himself of a false gift is like clouds and winds without rain. Now, the verse is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, but it has some really good principles for us to look at uh, in the area of spiritual gifts. And what he's basically saying here, and I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Bible, rain is a type of the Word of God. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, 
It says, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not hither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, here it comes, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it will not return void. Now, there he likens to a rainstorm as a picture of the word of God coming down and getting all over everything. Now, Isaiah 55 is the millennial, second coming millennial passage, and that's what it's dealing with. The Lord's second coming is like a rainstorm. In fact, you're told, as lightning cometh from the east into the west, so is the coming of the Son of Man. Joel talks about the second coming being in a cloudy day. He comes in a bit of a rainstorm. And that rain comes down just like if you get a summertime, you know, you go for five or six, seven, eight days without any rain. Everything, the air is thick, it's dirty, all the, and the grass is dry. And then you get one great rainstorm. The grass is greener, the flowers come out, the air is cleaner. That's all a picture of this dusty old world. And when the Lord comes back as rain, makes everything green again. And simply put, what he's saying here, if a man who preaches or an organization claims to have a spiritual gift that they really don't have, then it's like a rainstorm without any rain. The preaching will have no power. The preaching will have no purpose. It'll have no seemingly effect. It's just a lot of empty words that somebody will get up and they'll talk, have a service, have a sermon, but it never changes anything. There's no power to it. There's no punch to it. It's just getting up and you might as well be reciting a recipe for chocolate chip cookies from your grandmother. There's no life-changing effect that it comes at you like a rainstorm comes. I was listening to the news all this morning and, you know, they're talking about this storm of the century, you know, coming through Missouri. And they're talking about that in some areas, during the snow, you're going to have thunder and lightning. Now, that's a snowstorm. And, of course, it's a thing where thunder and lightning, I mean, that's a, that's a terrible storm. And everybody, everybody is going to be affected by it. It's going to slow the city down tomorrow. It's going to change everything. That's the way a preacher's message should be. It should hit you and impact you and change everything. Instead of getting up and just giving you the, you know, daily bread, so to speak, or your verse for the day. And, you know, you see this all the time in the religions of the world uh, and with their claims. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind to me is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church claims the gift of apostolic succession. That means that uh, every pope, uh, that Peter was the first pope, as they teach, and every pope... Uh, down the line was in the succession of Peter, and that was a gift given to them that church, that every pope and leader of that church could trace his line back to uh, the Apostle Paul. And yet, no pope ever had in any way, shape, or form the apostolic succession that they claim to have. It's a false gift that they boast of. First of all, they base it on Peter in Mark, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus calls him the rock and he's going to build his church upon him. And that's not what he said. But that's where they start this boasting of a false gift. First of all, uh, Peter was never in Rome. Second of all, Peter was married. 
third of all the, uh, all the biblical qualifications that you had to have to be an apostle, there, you just didn't go get a card that said, I'm an apostle on it. There were some qualifications found in the Bible that you had to have to be able to do that. No pope in the history of the world ever had those. And nobody today can have them. That's why there's no apostles today. And if that wasn't enough, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, you have what the Bible calls the signs of an apostle. No pope ever had them, ever. As a pope uh, with a gift of apostolic succession, so-called, there is absolutely no power from God in any of that. The only power that the Roman Catholic Church has is based on the military and political alliances that she's made down through history. You know, the underground movement of the Jesuits that have subverted every opposition that they have, their power lies in a complete totalitarian system that holds their members and people and countries down through history and the world in a grip of fear. They force their people to uh, have church membership in their church. They do that by making a political alliance with the king, the political government. And then the Roman Catholic Church, as in all of South America, much of Europe, they now set up a church-state system by which when you're born, you're born into the Catholic Church. That's their deal. That's how they do it. They make you, if you have your children, you have to sign a paper that you raise your kids, Roman Catholic. That's how they do it. They come up with the concept of purgatory. Purgatory is the idea that when you die, you don't go straight to heaven. You got to go to purgatory for a while to get purged out uh, uh, before you can go to heaven. And it's kind of like the intermediate place between heaven and hell. You know, it's not hell, but it isn't heaven. It's kind of like Topeka, Kansas, I mean, <laughs> in July. And it's a thing where... <laughs> if you ever been to Topeka, Kansas in July. Anyway, and, and then, but it, you, your, your grandma dies, your father dies, your mother dies, your child dies. Terrible tragedy. Instead of getting up and telling the truth and, and, and winning them to Christ and talking about the joy of going to heaven, no, 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 no. They'll use that as a system to tell you that your dear, sweet grandmother who you love dearly, or your father or your mother who you love dearly, or your child who you love dearly, now has died and they're in purgatory. And you can only get them out. And of course, you get them out by praying. <laughs> but then you also get them out by paying. And you pay, you pay money, you light candles, and the priest will pray him out, get him out. I'm not sure how they get that money down there, who they pay, but they get him out. And it's a, it's a system, see? That's the only power they have. It's a man, it's a totally corrupt, it's clouds without rain. It's men claiming to have a false spiritual gift that they do not have. Now, the next one is one of my favorites. This will be the charismatic movement. The word charismatic comes from the Latin word that means gifted. So if you're a charismatic, you're supposed to be gifted. Now, this heresy is for saved people, and you're going to find that heresies come in two flavors. You can get the saved version, which would be 
charismatics if they're saved. And then you have the unsaved version, which would be Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Jehovah Witnesses, and that crowd. And uh, I wrote a book years and years ago. In fact, it was the second book that I ever wrote. First one was How to Study the Bible. The second was a biblical uh, view of the charismatic movement. And uh, again, as all my books, it sold well under a million copies. But it's a book where it walks you through the charismatic movement and uh, as one guy used to buy, he's dead now, but he used to buy them a 50 at a time. And he was down in South America and he would pass them out. And he said, that was the greatest book he ever read on a charismatic movement. He says, it gets right to the point. It will, his words, it will kill you or cure you. And that's what I like about it. Charismatics are also called Pentecostals. They're called Pentecostals because in Acts chapter 1, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and somebody spoke in tongues. So they think that uh, when they speak in tongues, that uh, they call themselves Pentecostals. So they go back to uh, Pentecost. Sometimes they're called the Church of God. You'll find that title. And uh, you'll find that many neo-evangelical groups and even some Baptist groups beginning more to align with them. And now we get into the spiritual gifts that they boast of that are all false gifts, by the way. Uh, we call them the sign gifts. Healing. Uh, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues wasn't enough for them, so they come up with an unknown tongue to make tongues even more uh, spiritual uh, and have a gift. Uh, they talk about raising dead people. Uh, they talk about drinking any deadly thing uh, out of Mark 16. Uh, there's a group down in southern Missouri, Oklahoma, more down south, that are the snake handlers. That during their church services, when they get all lathered up in a spiritual moment, they'll pick out the they'll pick out the uh, copperheads, or they'll pick out the uh, you know the uh, uh, rattlesnakes, or they'll pick out. Uh, uh, I don't think too many of them. Uh, they they go rattlesnakes are bad, copperheads are bad. But you know the meanest snake on the block is a water moccasin? They'll come after you. And uh, these guys, uh, you know, they'll pick up a... And I'll tell you, if, you, if you're gentle and you don't scare him, and you don't make him afraid, you can pick up a poisonous snake and, and hold it up. I mean, uh, if you go after it, he's going to defend himself. But if he's just laying there, you know, and you pick him up, and, and they do all this, but there have been times, and they do that uh, on the fact that Paul, when he was on the way to Jerusalem, they got off there, got shipwrecked, and they built a fire, and Paul was getting some wood and a fire there, and a big viper came out and bit Paul on the arm, and Paul sees the big old snake dangling off, and all the unsaved people see it too, and he takes that snake off and throws it in the fire, and he never died. So they think that they have the gift of, you know, handling snakes, unfortunately, over the course of time, some of them have been bitten. And, you know, uh, you can get bit with a copperhead, and if you're a full-grown adult, you probably won't die. Rattlesnake, probably too. Uh, I mean, if you're a baby or a child or a young guy or you're not in good health, it'll probably get you. But you can usually survive. I mean, it hurts like crazy, but you can survive it. But there's been records of that thing, and, of course, they, uh, they, uh, they, they claim these gifts. Now, all the top men... And I've watched this for years, almost 50 years. We had a guy in Akron, Ohio. I'm from Canton. He was in Akron, Ohio. His name was Ernest Ainsley. 
I don't know if he's dead now or not, but he was around for a long time. And he was a charismatic up in Akron, Ohio. And he would have healing services where they would come across the stage in all kinds of physical ailments, and he attributed their disease to demons. And he would have two big guys, about you guys' size, standing there behind these people, and he would call the demons out, and he would hit them. And they would fall back. And he would turn around and say, praise the Lord, the demons are gone. He'd just run them through like that. His wife's name was Angel. This is a true story. When she died, I mean, he was the greatest healer in Akron, but his wife died. He was so sure that God was going to bring her back that he put a telephone in her casket. And if you would go there, you would see a phone line running off the pole into her casket, into the phone. Is that not true? It's a true story. She has never called. <laughs> He's wondering where all these long-distance bills are coming from. There was another lady back in my day by the name of Catherine Kuhlman. Catherine Kuhlman fancied herself in the fashion of Amy McPherson, who started the charismatic movement around 1900. Uh, she died in 1976. And she died in 1976 because, and now she was the greatest, she has, been, she has been called one of the greatest healers of the 20th century by her own peers. She died in 1976 after open heart surgery because she had heart issues. Now I'm asking myself the question. Everybody in the world went to her to get healed. But when she had an issue, she died like the rest. And she only lived about 40 miles down the road in Oklahoma from a guy by the name of T.T. Osborne, who was another great faith healer that she could have went to. And she never went to any of them. A medical doctor took 23 of her cases that she claimed were completely healed. And after he examined each one of them, come up and said that none of them were healed. She had a woman who had spinal cancer who came across the line of the stage, who was on crutches, who Catherine Kuhlman proclaimed her to be 100% healed. The woman threw her crutches, ran off the stage. The next day, her spine collapsed, and in four months, she was dead. And yet people would go to those things, people would believe in that, and people would believe it today. Do you know why that is so? You can't fix stupid. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I consider myself maybe the fastest one in the slow class. But I'm no brain rocket math science guy. <laughs> and I have my stupid issues like anybody else. And let me just say. I thank God when you guys gave me this that the cord wasn't bigger because I would have had to wear this around my neck. Because many times I, 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 I didn't want to fix stupid. But I'm telling you, I watch guys like Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart, he said, 
that if you didn't have the gift of the Holy Ghost and the evidence of speaking in tongues, that you would not go in the rapture of the church. Now, I don't know if he said that before or after he got caught with that hooker down in Louisiana. <laughs> but I know, he believed, I know he believed that you could lose your salvation for sin. And yet when he got arrested because he picked up a hooker by the vice squad down in wherever he was, and he lost all of his radio stuff and all of those things that went on, he got back on the radio, he made an apology, but he never one time said he ever got resaved. You see, you have to get resaved. He doesn't. I've watched him teach the Bible and talk about how God heals. And he'd say, let me read for you a passage of Scripture. And he'd pick up his glasses and put them on. Are you kidding me? You got the power to heal, you need glasses? Oral Roberts, Tulsa, Oklahoma. One of the most pro proclaimed healers, faith healers in the 20th century. One time he built a prayer, had so many followers, he built a prayer tower and went up in that prayer tower and said that God told him to stay in that tower and die if the people that were his followers didn't raise $8 million so he could do the work of the Lord. He got his $8 million. I don't think he missed even lunch. <laughs> Greatest healer on the, on, on the planet in his day. Oral Roberts University, get this, it's a medical college. He trained the greatest healer on the planet instead of training out other healers who had the gift. He started a school to train doctor just like you and I go to. And people look at that and never get it. You know why? Because you can't fix stupid. I mean, you look at something like that and you think to yourself, hey, come on, even I can see the inconsistencies. Their boasting of a false gift is so apparent to anybody who can read, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, you don't need, you're a faith healer. Hey, come on. You, you, you don't need to get a tent on a back lot someplace. Go down to KU Med Center in the children's cancer ward. Take your gift down to the hospitals where people are in ICU. Do the work of an evangelist. Walk through the, you know how many, whatever, you want money? Is that what this is about? There are parents down at KU that would give you every dollar you ever wanted if you just take the cancer from a little five or six-year-old kid. Where are you? How come you're not down there? How come it's always in some sleazy tent or some church where everything is controlled? Why don't you come with me down to KU? We'll walk down the halls together. We'll go into the room. We'll announce to them. Why don't you come to me to the next funerals I got to do? Well, we can, we can make everybody happy. You know, if you just put a small price on it, $500 or $1,000, and I'll bring your loved one back, you know, you know how much money you'd have in a week? Why, why, why don't you do that? Jesus raised Lazarus in John chapter 11, and he'd been dead four days, and he stunk through decay. 
How come none of this lines up to anything like anything in the Bible? Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, you know what? Uh, you, you don't get healed. We can't do that because people don't have enough faith to believe. Really? Well, Jesus raised dead people. How much faith can a dead man have? Now, at first glance, the Roman Catholic system and the charismatic system seem to be totally different. But when you put the book to it, you'll find that they're much the same uh, because they both boast, boast of false gifts. First of all, both steal the gifts that are clearly given in the Bible to the nation of Israel. Secondly, one apostolic succession, the other one is the gifts that were given to Israel through the apostles. Both think that they are the only way to heaven. The Pope and any church, if you pin a Catholic down, I don't care how nice he is to you or how much he gets along with the neo-evangelical crowd or even the Baptist or whoever. You pin him down, he will tell you there is no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. At the end of the day, if you don't become Catholic, you ain't getting to heaven. Of course, Jimmy Swaggart, he taught that if you didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God, he, you know, you weren't going to go in a rapture either. They both replaced the clear teaching of God's Word with something uh, that gives them the false gift. If you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you, what he's doing in his church doesn't go, is against the Bible, and you ask him why that is, he will tell you that the traditions of the church will override the Bible. In the charismatic crowd, if they're speaking in tongues and you show them in the Bible where the Bible says tongues shall cease, he will claim the same thing on his side and say, well, you can't deny my experience. Sure I can. In both cases, the final authority, all I'm saying, will not be the Bible. Now, when it comes to that, uh, when it comes to uh, Bible Christianity... Uh, we see the same thing in, in, in many Baptist churches and neo-evangelical churches too. Mainstream Christianity, if you would please. I've never seen a more messed up, ridiculous teaching that you have today on spiritual gifts that you have in Bible churches today. Save people. And, and let me say, uh, there has been many a young man who claimed to have the gift of being a pastor, and as you'll see in a few moments, being a pastor is one of the spiritual gifts. We'll get there in a moment. And he doesn't have it. But he worms his way into the ministry. He wasn't called by God, but he called himself. Uh, through the system that we have today, and, and it's very clearly uh, that he has no business being a pastor. He lacks the number one qualification of a pastor, and that is he knows nothing about the Bible. You'll find that the books in your Bible that are the instructions for me as a pastor and anybody else that's a pastor, you will find that it's found in, in, in four books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, Philemon, and Titus, Titus and Philemon. And you'll find that in your Bible, Paul wrote those books, and they're called the, yes, pastoral epistles. In those books, you will find what you're to look for in a person's life if they have that gift of being a pastor. Paul says to young Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.6, he says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee, by putting on my hands. That's his ordination. Stirring up the gift of him being a pastor. 
In 1 Timothy 4.14, he says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given to thee by the presbytery, that's the other pastors, with the laying on of hands. They gave it to him by ordaining him. And of course, we see that, that, that uh, a lot of wannabes today, they, they have no clue. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he gave him 12 qualifications of being a pastor. If you'd ask the average pastor what those 12 qualifications were today, he wouldn't even know. But he got in somehow. Once you got 1 Timothy, then you got 2 Timothy. And he really goes to work laying out what a pastor is supposed to do in 2 Timothy. And of course, you don't find this today. You find the pastor wannabes, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago, that had a marital issue that was a terrible deal. And his, his, his answer to it was love potion number nine, start dating again. And in most cases, just it winds up making a greater mess out of it and never accomplishes the purpose that God really wants to get done. And all of that is nothing more than rain or clouds without rain. Preaching and teaching with no life-changing power. No thunder, no lightning, no freshness, no clean. It's just, it just clouds without any real rain. In short, they've never been called of God to the pastorate, but rather uh, they've called themselves. And now they have no evidence of that. So they boast of this gift. Now, without a doubt, all of this will go back to a complete lack of understanding of, Bible, of the Bible's position on it. You know, we know that. And over the years, there have been thousands of Christians, thousands of Christians that have been duped by the Christian medicine men who go from church to church and sell their snake oil for spiritual gifts. And the standard Baptist teaching is, and neo-evangelical teaching is, that you, if you're saved, have one main major spiritual gift. And your job is to, you may have some secondary ones, but you have a main gift that you have to find out what that is. When you identify that gift, then you build your life around that gift, something along those lines. I have in my files at home... <clears throat> the amazing spiritual gift test. There were actually churches that brought men in or the pastor got his hands on them and who actually took to his congregation, we're going to find out what your spiritual gift is. So you take this test. And when you take this test, the one I have has 60 questions on it. And you answer those questions, each question on a scale zero to five. Zero, this isn't me. Five, oh, this is me. And there, there are 60 basic questions about your walk with God, your relationship with God, your attitude about the things of God. And when you take the test and then you tally up your score, it shows you what your spiritual gift really is. Now, let me just say something to you. Don't ever allow your flesh to decide how spiritual you are. I love the Lord. I love the book. I love you. I love God. I'd cheat on that test. 
You know why? Because we all have one fundamental problem. We all think of ourselves highly than we really are. Oh, yeah, we do. I do. We all think we're better than we really are. So I'm going to take a test, a spiritual test, that's going to tell me what my spiritual gifts are, and I get to decide how spiritual I am on all, <laughs> on all 60 of the Man, I hope he gives that test at the judgment seat of Christ. You've got to be kidding me. Your human nature is going to decide. Is there anybody, don't raise your hand, is there any, and there probably is. I'm not one of them. Is there anybody here, don't raise your hand, is there anybody here that you're so in touch with the Holy Spirit of God that the moment you sin, it doesn't go 10 seconds, you know it, you confess it, and you get it right, and you stay on even with God all day long. I'm not one of them. And you're not either, probably. Amen. And so, given that, I'm going to allow myself to take a 60-question test to judge and gauge my own spirituality, each one of them. We always think of ourselves better than we are. I, I, I never met an unsaved drunk anywhere who didn't have something good to say about himself. I try to deal with them. They'd brag about the fact that everybody else had to go. Uh, they would always, they would always have enough money to buy their own drinks. I want them to brag one time that he'd get sick from drinking, but he'd never throw up. They always have something great to say about themselves. Human nature, yours and mine, can never be left to decide how spiritual we are. What is wrong with you? You can't. And that's stupid, man. You kidding me? I'm going to I'm going to decide what what I do. Hey, you know what? When you get into a church, you get involved in the Bible and you get into the word of God, if any man love God the same as known of him, the Holy Spirit of God will show you exactly who you are. Now, this has been put together by men and pastors who, who couldn't take the Bible and lay out the spiritual gifts if their life depended on it. They have no clue where the definitive passages are in the Bible on spiritual gifts. So they, they make their living by going around to stupid Christians that they pray every day will not get fixed. Come in and have their spiritual gift rallies their revival time, and want to give everybody leaving, give everybody their spiritual gift. So take this test, and this will show you what your primary spiritual gift is. The boasting of a fall gift. Let me ask you a question. Allow me to ask this in light of our gift test, which in reality is the gift of stupidity. What was Jesus Christ's primary spiritual gift? Think about that one for a moment. Some of you ones who have fixed stupid probably already know where I'm going with this. What was Jesus' primary spiritual gift? I mean, he was the embodiment of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And having all of the Spirit of God, God gave him the gifts of the Spirit to do all the work that God called him to do. Did he have one main spiritual gift and the rest of them were just secondary gifts? Or was he the embodiment of the Holy Spirit of God? And when God called him to do a work, God empowered him with whatever he needed to get that job done. You know, the model, the pattern is in the Old Testament. They never see it. In Isaiah chapter 11, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was not manifest into a person. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament was manifested through seven distinct spirits called the seven spirits of God. Here's how it worked. When a man had a task to do for God, God would give him one of those seven, multiples of those sevens, or all of the seven. God would give him whatever of those seven spirits he needed to get that job done. And when the job was done, those spirits could leave. Now, in the Old Testament, there was no sealing of the Holy Spirit of God like there is for you and for me in Ephesians 4.30 and 2 Timothy 2. It came upon them, the seven spirits, and then it could leave. Now here it comes. In the New Testament, you have all of the Holy Spirit of Christ, the same spirit that Jesus Christ had, the same exact spirit that is the spirit of God. You have it at the point of salvation, comes inside your body, seals you, never to leave until the day of redemption, and now your body becomes the temple of that Holy Spirit of God. The absolute, complete Holy Spirit of God, the same one that Jesus had. And in John chapter 16, the great definitive passage in the Bible on the Holy Spirit of God, you will find the seven manifestations of that Holy Spirit of God in your life and my life in what he does for you. But in the New Testament... Here's the difference. He lives and dwells inside you and I, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You're sealed, Ephesians 4, 30, and he never leaves. But you have the same Holy Spirit of God in you that Christ had. Jesus Christ was called the Son of God. He was called the Son of God because he was born of the Spirit of God. You and I are called the Son of God, 1 John chapter 3, because we are born of the same Spirit of God, and we have the same Spirit of God in us that he had in him. So when we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God, all of him, came into you and me, and now you body becomes his temple. And now you and I are supposed to grow spiritually. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Peter 1, 5, that once you get saved and you get all of the Holy Spirit of God, there's some things that you add to your faith. Those things you add to your faith are the very same spirits spiritual gifts that they talk about that you may or you may not have. you got preachers out there giving you a test that tells you you may have one of the major seven, but you got a Bible that tells you that you're to add all seven to your life. <laughs> oh, golly. The idea of you and I having a primary gift and you needing to find it is totally ridiculous. 
My Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him. Not unto him. You're to be him. Your maturing process is to make you grow up into him. And if you will ever grow up into him, you will get all of the Holy Spirit of God working for you. You see, right now, here's the confusion. You got all of the Holy Spirit of God there is, but the Holy Spirit of God doesn't have all of you that there is. See? Oh, that's the problem. You know, pastors like to limit you in your spiritual growth. I don't think they do it on purpose. They do it because in their lives, you can't fix stupid. They were taught and trained that you're stupid people. That they have to give you everything. So what they do is in their very ministries, they want to hold you back. So first of all, they'll tell you that you can't learn the Bible on your own. You'll have to go to a Bible college or come to the pastor who will tell you with the Greek and the Hebrew what it really means because you're too stupid to figure it out yourself. And when you buy that because you're stupid, then he limits you. You'll never build that book in your life as long as you are hanging on to somebody else who's going to have to give it to you. It's your book. The next thing he does is he tells you who want to read it and study it that the Bible that you do have isn't any good. So he limits you. Then he tells you that the Holy Spirit of God that God put inside you that is the same Spirit of God that Jesus had to do the work of God that you only got one, maybe two aspects of it. And he limits you. And you go through your whole life, wind up at the judgment seat of Christ, going to a church, listening to a pastor who his whole ministry and through your whole life had one goal, whether he knew what he was doing or not, that is to limit you in every aspect of your relationship with Christ. And you fall for it. You fall for it. Hey, I've seen God people take that spiritual gift test. I've watched them take it and brag about, well, I've got this gift or I've got that gift. Wow, I was a great test. This was a great thing. And never do one thing with that gift. You just want to wear the badge. Here, I got one, a better badge for you to wear. As you grow spiritually, as you mature spiritually, in that process of growing up into Him, not unto Him, into Him, you'll find in the Bible seven stages of your spiritual growth. And as you grow, God will develop you in those stages. 
and every character quality that Christ has as you grow up into him, he will put into your life. As you do the work, he will give you the gifts that you need, whatever the situation may be, for you to do that job. God will always supply you to the work he called you. Hey, he gave everything to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to do the work of the Father, but God cut him short, took him up to heaven, put in the church age, made you his replacement, gave you the same Holy Spirit of God, and you're supposed to finish the work. With what? One or two? How ridiculous. How absolutely, asininely ridiculous God's people are today, pastors are today, and any church that teaches that garbage. You got everything that Jesus Christ had. He had every gift that God had. And as you grow up into him, the problem is you're not growing. You're stuck in a rut. So some shuckster comes in selling his 50 cent bottles of snake oil wrapped in a spiritual gift test. You take it and think you've made great progress for God. You're an idiot. You want to make great progress with God, you get in that book, you fall in love with that book, you fall in love with him, you grow up into him, you start that process of spiritual growth in your life, and I guarantee you God will give everything you need. Now let me talk to you about spiritual gifts for a moment so we get this straight in our minds. The definitive passages in the Bible for understanding spiritual gifts are 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. All three chapters will go together under the heading of spiritual gifts. It starts out with 12.1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, I'd not have you to be ignorant. It's one of the seven things that God's people are told not to be ignorant of, which are the exact seven things we all are ignorant of. But he starts it in 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. And then he goes through the rest of 12, all of 13, all of 14, and he lays out spiritual gifts, which I'm going to show you very quickly. And then when he gets to the end of chapter 14, which closes out the three definitive chapters, he says in 14.40, after he laid out everything about spiritual gifts, here's what he says, let all things be done in order. Ah, so there's an order to the spiritual gifts. Let's get that order. Let's do a terrible thing. Let's do a terrible, terrible thing. Let's go to the Bible. Get the order. Now, I want you to notice that this is the church at Corinth. And this is the first letter that he writes, which clearly tells us who know anything about the Bible that the church at Corinth was the most messed up church in the New Testament. And it's very clear from chapter 12, 13, and 14, they are screwed up on spiritual gifts, much like we are today. Now, when you lay it all out, here's what you got. Spiritual gifts will fall into three distinct categories. You must get each category defined. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 defines each category, along with some other places in the Bible. It's a lot like you'll remember 
we did an incredible message a study a while back on, on wine in the Bible. And remember, we talked about the issue of wine versus new wine. The new wine was grape juice, and wine, just wine was fermented. And many, many, many people think that you can drink wine today as a Christian and it's okay uh, because Jesus drank wine and all that stuff, you know. And of course, we know that he never did. And I showed you how to straighten that out. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you remember. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he defined for you what new wine was and what the devil's wine was. Once you have that definition, then every time you read wine in the Bible, whether it's new wine or not, the context of who's drinking it will tell you based on a definitive passage in Deuteronomy 32 which one it is. You don't have that definitive passage, you're going to be a wine bibber. You're going to be with Captain Morgan. You're going to be with Mogan David. You're going to be in Napa Valley. <laughs> It's a lot like this, that. Now, here's the order of spiritual gifts that you're told that spiritual gifts are supposed to be done in order. Now, the first gift will be found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. And this will be the gift of the offices to the church, pastor, bishop. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, But to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, he that ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive, here it comes, and gave gifts unto men. Let's see what those gifts are. Now that he ascended, what is it that he first descended on the lower parts of the earth? And, and, that, and he that descended in the same also ascended up far above all heavens and in my fulfill all things. Now here comes the gift. You haven't got the gifts yet. He gave you, that he gave gifts to men, then he gave you two verses telling you what he did. Now he's going to give you the gifts. Here they come. And he gave some apostles. Now there's apostles that are to the nation of Israel. Those are 12. And then there's seven apostles that are listed that are given to the church, in the early church. Those are gifts. And then he says, some prophets. You'll find those prophets in Acts chapter 11. They're a gift. Then he says, and some evangelists. You'll find that in the book of Acts. You'll find that uh, uh, Philip was an evangelist in Acts chapter 8. And you'll find that Paul was an evangelist. He was not a pastor. He was an evangelist. That's a gift. Then he says, and some pastors and teachers. Now, the pastors and teachers there, not being separated by a comma, isn't two different categories. It simply says that a pastor should be a teacher. That's what he's saying. But the pastor is a gift. Now, this is a gift not, not everybody's going to have. This is a gift that there has to be evidence of. And that evidence is laid out in First and Second Timothy through the 12 charges. There's some qualifications for a pastor. It's laid out in Second Timothy as to his doctrine. You see, Titus and Philemon, and they're all pastors. They're called the pastoral epistles. So the first category we find, or the first order of spiritual gifts, is the office of the church of a bishop or a pastor. And not everybody has that one. Paul told Timothy that that gift was within him, that it was stirred up in him. 
And it was given to him once it was recognized, it was confirmed by the evidence of the laying on of hands. That's ordination. The second one, the second set of gifts will be those that are given to the apostles, not the church. And this is where a charismaniac gets out of control. <laughs> second Corinthians 12, 12 says, um, truly the signs of a possible wrought among you in all patience and the signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Tongues, healing, all of the things that the charismatic church claims today and boast of a gift is a boasting of a false gift. Those are signs that are given to an apostle and there are no apostles today. Let me show you a good example of how it works in Mark chapter 16. While you're writing, just listen to this. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven. So we're dealing with the twelve apostles here, minus one. Judas is dead. As they sat at meat and unbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which he had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he, and, and he that believed and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Now here it comes, verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Now, I want you to notice here that every charismatic will lift this out and put it into the church age. And the only problem with that is because you're so stupid, the church age is not even in effect yet. He's not writing this to all of Christianity. He's writing it to the 11. Anybody who could read third grade English could see that. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if any they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So that after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat on the right hand of God. And they, the eleven, went forth and preached everywhere with the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following then the signs of an apostle were the apostolic signs that were given to them that Israel was told to look for. Back in Exodus chapter 4, when God's dealing with Moses, and he's talking about the establishment of the nation of Israel, he tells Moses to take his hand and put it inside his bosom. When he pulls it out, it's leprous. He puts it back in and pulls it out again, it's healed. And you know what he says to Moses in Exodus 4? He says, with signs of healing just like that. I'm going to manifest myself to my people. That's why the Bible says, if you want to get right down to it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, it says that tongues are for a sign. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22, it says that the Jews require that sign. It has nothing to do with the church. So now you have two laid out for you. Now you have the pastor and the leadership role, it's a gift to the church, along with the apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Then you have the sign gifts that were only given to the apostles that only deal with Israel, which the charismatics steal and try to rip off and boast of that false gift. And the charismatics, they take the shine gifts given to the nation of Israel, and uh, they go crazy with it. Right up the road here, I talked to a kid not too long ago, and he was all screwed up on the spiritual gifts. And he, I says, uh, who taught you all this? He says, I went to IHOP. I said, you know what? You should have went to the one and got, got pancakes. Because the one you went to was a mess. One of the most demonic organizations on the planet. 
In fact, I'm not too sure the whole charismatic movement is, a, is, is in demonic in some aspect of it. You can't hate truth that much and be against truth that much and have God on your side. But I understand. I get there's a clause. I get it. And I'll put that, that exception clause. Sometimes you can't. Finally, you have the third one is the gifts that are given to individual Christians who have the Holy Spirit of God just like Jesus did. And uh, they have everything that, uh, that, uh, that Christ did. When you got saved, God gave you the Holy Spirit of God, all of it. When you got saved, God gave you the mind of God, all of it, the Word of God. And when you got saved, God gave you His body, all of it, the local New Testament spiritual church that you were born into. You got complete in all of that. The problem is that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't have all of you. You got all of it, but that's, that's the issue right there. And God will give, uh, and, and, and the gifts are given to individual Christians who, as the Holy Spirit of God does the work of God, and God develops you, God will give you whatever you need to do whatever he's called you to do. Uh, the key is, is growing up into him. You may never have the gift of being a pastor, but you'll have all the other gifts that, uh, that you're told to add to your faith. And uh, you'll have everything that you need. You'll lack nothing. The idea that you're going to set yourself up with one major spiritual gift and the rest of your life, that's all you're going to do, that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. Charismatics will never get to that. Uh, He he reads over there in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, where the Bible says, tongues shall cease, and he just blows right through it. He never even stops to consider there's only three places in the Bible where somebody ever speaks in tongues and they're all found in the book of Acts. He'll try to make 1 Corinthians the fourth one, but the 1 Corinthians is not a how-to. The 1 Corinthians is Paul straightening them out and trying to get them to the right order. You see, the problem in 1 Corinthians is really not a problem, but it would be for some people, that he puts all of the gifts together and doesn't tell you which is which. Because you're supposed to get the definitive passages on it to know, just like the wine, which is which when you see it. Because in the church of Corinth at that particular time, you still have tongues because they're still in effect. They haven't ceased yet. So you're going to have in a New Testament local church early where they have the pastor gifts, you have the individual power for gifts, but they're still using the sign gifts because they're still reaching people out there that are requiring a sign. But when you understand the three definitive passages on it and understand how they're defined and lay out the order, then just like the wine, whenever I read this one, I know what it is. When I read this one, I know what it is. And when I read this one, I know what it is. The Bible always defines it for you. The problem is we march into the Bible without any definitions. And then we make it up any way we want to. Now, you need to see this, and this is unknown today. Now, here's how it really works for you, or it should work for you. In your Bible, you have new two main concepts on the Christian life, dealing with spiritual gifts. The first one is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22, verses 33. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. This is the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. They are love, they are joy, they are peace, they are long-suffering, they are gentleness, they are goodness, they are uh, faith, they are meekness, uh, they are temperance. Those are the same things that are on that test, that, that test that you would take. 
And yet the Bible says that these are the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, that if you have the Spirit of God in you and it's working in you, these things will be there. If that wasn't enough, he said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that there's seven things that you add to your faith. They are virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, uh, brotherly kindness, and the seventh one is charity. Now, you're supposed to add charity along with the other six to your faith. How do you do that when Paul told you in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, that charity was the greatest gift that you could have? Charity isn't something that God gives some of you and doesn't give others. Charity is a gift, one of the powering gifts to you that you get when you add these things to your faith and you mature and you grow. The fruit of the Spirit of God, listen to me, the fruit of the Spirit of God will be the character qualities of Christ that you build into your life as you grow up into Him. More like Christ every day of your life. More like Christ today than you were yesterday. More like Christ tomorrow than you were today. The essence of a changed life because of the embodiment of the Holy Spirit of God. That when you hear what God said by the words fitly spoken, that you take the reproof. God molds you and fashions you into exactly what he wants. And he's called every one of you to do a job. And he will equip you to do that job. He will truly furnish you unto all good works. Now, how is that somebody who just got one of the spiritual gifts? You idiot. Second thing. First, you have the fruit of the Spirit. Now you have the gifts of the Spirit. Now, we now know that they fall into three categories or three orders. We have the gifts of a pastor or leadership, We have the individual gifts that are given to child of God, you and me as Christians. No test needed. And then you have the gifts, the sign gifts that were only given to the apostles that are not to the church. Now the body of Christ of the three can have two. We have men who have the gift of being a pastor. We have every saved person who has the gifts that are given to them to do the work of God. Now listen to me. The fruit of the Spirit will represent the character of God. The gifts of the Spirit will represent the power of God. I'm going to say it again. Where the fruit of the Spirit will represent the character of God and the gifts of the Spirit will represent the power of God, you cannot separate the two. They have to be viewed and studied and applied together. There will be no power of God in your life, the spiritual gifts, without the character of God in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. You are kidding yourself. You're wasting your time. Because it's only through the character of God, the qualities of Christ as you God, that God will reveal the power of God in your life, not through some stupid asinine test. Philippians 4.10 says that I may know him and the power of the resurrection. You know him first, then the power of the resurrection. You get the character of God first through knowing him. Then you get the power of God and the spiritual gifts. Now, (laughs) how easy is that? Everything in your Christian life will come back to that book and you loving it so much that you allow it into your heart first, into your head second, and then let it into your life to change your life. 
And when you don't, Proverbs 25, 14, you have to boast of a gift you don't have. You have to pretend you're something that you're not. You have to take some stupid, ridiculous, asinine spiritual test to try to determine your spiritual gift, and you get to choose your spiritual level of which one it is. Doesn't get any better than that. Till the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> God trusting you and me to find out how spiritual we really are. Are you kidding me? I mean, 800,000 sperm, and you were the fastest one to the egg? You have to boast of a gift that you don't have. And it, it, you have to now become a phony. You have no power, God, in your life. You're a storm without any, with clouds, with no rain, no thunder, no lightning, no power, no passion. And unfortunately, that's God's people today, for the most part, all talk. I've seen them. They've been in church 5, 10, 15 years. I've had in my own ministry that they got, please allow me to say this, in my own personal opinion, some of the best Bible teaching that they could ever find anywhere. I get them on Ruckman's tapes. I've taught them and trained them and given everything I know that I've learned in almost 50 years of my life. And I've seen them after 4 years, 5 years, 10 years. I've seen people that in five years' time, uh, they, their life was so different. They were so on fire. I mean, you take the word, old things are passed away, brother, all things become new. You look that verse up, there are pictures there. Then I've seen some that get the same teaching and nothing about them ever changes. They're still struggling with the same stuff. They're still whining every day about the same issues. They still have no clue when it comes to the Bible. Somebody always has to continually feed them. You don't have the character qualities of Christ, so you get the power of, of, of so you get the power of God in your own life. You just all your life wait for the next person to teach you the Bible. Your whole life is going from person to person to teach me this, give me that. But you just never do anything with what you have. You're trying to live off somebody else's spiritual knowledge. Never work. Your whole life, I've seen it all my ministry. People that just go from one study to another, one person to another. I mean, we disciple here, discipleship one, discipleship two, coming up with a discipleship three. We have Bible Institute. We have the people ministry. We have all those things. But you know what? I watched 95, 98% of you. I watched you come through all of those things and you come through them because you're doing something with them, and there's a progression. You're not five, six years staying at the same level. I mean, living off somebody's spirituality is okay for a while. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear when you first get saved, you have to be nurtured. You have to be taken care of. You're like a baby. It's a good deal. You, 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 I give you somebody to work with you and disciple you and, and to bring you through discipleship too and to help you change and face the issues in your life. And you know as well as I do that if you're just to sit down and discipling somebody, listen to me, you know this is true. If you just sit down and disciple somebody and you just simply go through the lessons and they're not 
it's not opening up things in their life that they want to talk to you about that you're changing, you're wasting your time. Those lessons aren't designed. They're designed with a mind behind them things. Mine. <laughs> Scary thought. <laughs> those lessons weren't designed to teach you the Bible. Yeah, they were. But those lessons were designed to get inside your heart. Open it up. Let me tell you, lesson one, and you start to babble on, they say, you know what, I'm having problems with my marriage. I'm having a problem with my kid. And you put lesson one aside, and it's designed to open up the, the, the tables of the heart. Because you can't teach somebody the Bible without changing their life. And you can't change their life without getting into it and teaching them the Bible. So if you just go through, I've seen it in all my ministry, one class, another class, go through this, go through that, and you never do a thing with it. You're no farther along the road now after what, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years? Five, six, seven. I mean, it's okay when you're a baby, but five, six, seven years later, and you still have to be breastfed with the Bible? I mean, I get it. First Peter 2 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, you take those baby Christians and you, you feed them. But Isaiah 28, 9 says, Who shall we teach knowledge? That's a question. And whom shall we make to understand doctrine? That's another question. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. It's all right to be breastfed as a baby, spiritually speaking. But there has to be a time in your life when you've got to dig it out yourself. Quit living off everybody else. Let me tell you something. You give me your undivided attention. You give me your life. You, you do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it with the book. And I'll have you in two years' time where you have a working knowledge of the Word of God. You give me four years and I'll have you thoroughly finished. You give me five to six years, do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it. Put the right things in your life. Get those seven classes in your life like I'm bringing you through an institute. And I will put you up against anybody in this world when it comes to that Bible. But in that process, listen to me. You have to change some things. And that's what most of God's people are not willing to do. So they go through their whole life. No character of God. No power of God. Going to a dumb, stupid church. Listen to a dumber, stupid pastor who wants to give you some stupid, asinine spiritual gift that you'll take that test, that you will grade your own spirituality. What a deal, man. Why, if I could do that and get away with it, I'd bump St. Peter off the gate, I'd be in charge of that thing. I wouldn't let some of you in either. <laughs> Never trust yourself with your own spirituality. That's why Paul said, prove all things. That's why he gave you the book. That's why you have people that you're accountable to. That's why you have principles and patterns. If we just are left to themselves, it's like the book of Judges. No king in Israel, and every man does what's right in his own eyes. That's what we do.
growing up into him. Coming through the process where as you grow, you add those things to your faith. You're not just going through the classes. You're not start cataloging principles, cataloging verses. Oh, look at my book of principles. I don't want to see your book of principles. I want to see the changed life because of those principles. So what happens? You take the spiritual test. Somebody says, I think you've got the gift of mercy. What's your gift? My gift is the gift of humility. <laughs> I had a guy tell me that one time. I, says, I said, what's your spiritual gift? He says, I have the gift of humility. I said, you mean you had the gift of humility? <laughs> you just lost it. <laughs> Oh, I love dealing with them. Got to be half enough to deal with them, but that's me. Look, you have to grow up into him. God gave you his mind, he gave you his body, and he gave you all of his spirit. It's all you need. When you put the character of God in your life, you'll have the power of God in your life. No matter what God calls you to do. He may never call you to be a pastor, but there's plenty of things that he'll give for you to do. And just like the Old Testament, he'll give you exactly what you need to do the job. Only this time, it doesn't leave, it stays. And then you add to your faith. And out of all the gifts that you could have, is the greatest gift, he says, is charity. And charity, he says, is a gift, but he tells you that you have, you, you, you have to add that to your faith. It may be a gift, but it's something you get as you build the character qualities of God in your life, as all of them are. See how simple that is? It is one of the most easiest things once you just explain it. Well, we'll hold up 